Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. I'm Patricia Schuker, and I am pleased to be with you and to have the chance to introduce our speaker, uh, Professor Richard Schroeder, as part of the Global Impact Discussion Series. Uh, which goal is to promote discussion between government and private sector and academic leaders. Uh, for those who are new to the Institute of World Politics, uh, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. Uh, we have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. So if you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. So Professor Richard Schroeder uh, specializes in Cold War and intelligence issues. His PhD dissertation at the University of Chicago was on the Hitler Youth as a paramilitary organization. Trained as an infantry platoon leader, he served as a US Army intelligence officer on the Army staff in Washington, DC, and the US military command in Vietnam. He is the author of Classified U.S. Army Political Studies. Following his tour in Vietnam, he was research director on the Louisiana gubernatorial campaign of the late Congressman Gillis Long. During his 31-year career as an officer of the Central Intelligence Agency's clandestine service, he held senior management positions both in Washington and Europe in the CIA Directorates of Operation and Science and Technology and spent three years in CIA's Office of Congressional Affairs responsible for Directorate of Operations Liaison with Congressional Intelligence Oversight Committees. He also served as Deputy Director of the CIA Center for the Study of Intelligence, and his final as, uh, assignment before retirement in 2003 was a CIA Chair and Professor of Political Science at National Defense University Industrial College of the Armed Forces. Uh, he's a founding member of the Board of Advisors of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'll start there. And I just don't want to spoil, give any spoilers of, of this great book. But upon finishing your book, I was reminded of this quote by the most colorful and best-known individual in the world of intelligence analysis, uh, Sherman Kent, who said, I quote, I suppose that if we, in intelligence, were one day given three wishes, they will be to know everything, to be believed when we spoke, and in such a way to exercise an influence to the good in the matter of policy. Tough wishes, uh, indeed, uh, regrettably, um, as Judge Webster uh, wrote in, 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 in the book as a foreword, sours, nor sours, nor Hillencoter, have been recognized for the important roles in American intelligence, supporting Harry Truman's foreign policy during those dangerous uh, early years of the Cold War. But one thing is sure, they would have had great confidence that each new generation of intelligence <coughs> analysts would pull its own weight in further strengthening and honoring the profession. Um, Professor, Professor Schroeder will be available uh, for book signing after the event. Um, I will remind you after the event, but I do have a few other housekeeping notes to mention. Um, you came in through this door, but if you have to leave for the event, please do so uh, as quiet as possible as we are recording and streaming this event live. Uh, we will leave 30 to 40 minutes for Q&A at the end um, for, after uh, Professor Schroeder's presentation. Please be excited, uh, energ more energized, and think about some hard questions uh, that you want to ask Professor Schroeder's 
And I think that's all for me. And welcome, Professor Schroeder. And it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. I didn't expect that you were going to read the entire biographic blurb that was on that. Good afternoon, folks. And thank you for coming. Uh, my book is called The Foundation of the CIA. And it's titled that deliberately because I don't want to mislead you into thinking that it's a history of the CIA. Basically, what I'm doing here is something that I was inspired to do by the 20 years that I've spent teaching graduate students and advanced undergraduates at Georgetown University, which is I've discovered that there's an enormous interest in American intelligence community and in the CIA, but there's also an enormous amount of misunderstanding about the intelligence business in general and about the CIA specifically. And there's also a good deal of suspicion and hostility, especially we will remember since um, the Pike and Church Commissions in the 1970s and the whole idea that the CIA is a rogue elephant, things of that sort. So what I wanted to do was to look at the very early years, how the United States got into the profession or the business of national intelligence, and also say a little bit about the early leaders of the organization. Now, there are a number of authors in the room, and not all of us are as fortunate as my friend in the back corner, Bob Wallace there, who has got multiple bestsellers on his, uh, on his biography. But if you're going to write a book, your big challenge is to find a publisher. And in my case, the publisher that I found was the University of Missouri. Because of that, the book is kind of focused on Missouri and Missourians. And that's why Harry Truman is there at the first president who created the Central Intelligence Agency. And then the second group is what we call, somebody took my clicker. Did it for myself. The second group is what I call the Missouri Gang. And these are the sort of founding generation. And surprisingly, a lot of them, like Truman himself and like Judge Webster there, who's the third Missouri director, were from Missouri. So the book is written sort of with a Missouri focus on it which I think is, is justifiable in those early years. And it's also written to highlight a number of important themes about the way the United States conducts intelligence. And these predate the CIA, but they are characteristics of the CIA that in many ways make it almost unique among intelligence organizations around the world. Then I wanted to talk about some, some specific episodes from the early years and a number of lessons. And 
the lessons that I have in the book are not necessarily lessons that we learned. They are lessons that we have had to repeatedly experience over and over again. Uh, as Harry Truman said in one of my favorite quotations from him, the only thing new in the world is history you don't know. And the only thing new in intelligence today is basically that many of the mistakes and the challenges and the travails that the early generations of American intelligence officers go through, went through, and I'm talking here basically about the OSS and the Second World War, many of those challenges facing those officers are exactly the same challenges we have today. I'm going to talk about a few of those as we move along. So remember that. The only thing new is things you don't know about the past. We have repeatedly made the same mistakes or faced the same challenges had and in these early crises that we had to deal with I think are going to be very familiar to my fellow intelligence officers here in the room. Uh, basically issues having to do with bureaucratic infighting within the United States government, maybe even within the intelligence community, but also the challenges of dealing, as intelligence organizations do, with foreigners. And the thing we keep forgetting over and over again is that foreigners do not necessarily share our national interests or our tribal interests because they have their own. That we sometimes have a hard time remembering. Now, third slide here. Um, the United States basically came late to the profession of intelligence, my judgment. Now, that's not to say that we didn't have brilliant practitioners in intelligence. Some people call George Washington the first director of central intelligence or national intelligence. And the United States had a very good intelligence uh, experiences during the Civil War. But one of the characteristics of the United States, and I saw this playing out in the 1990s myself when I was in Congressional Affairs, is once a crisis is over, and once we've declared victory or extricated ourselves from war, we lose focus on international affairs and we lose focus on intelligence. And we go on, especially after the Civil War, we went on to uh, populating the West, um, happened after the First World War, happened after the Second World War, when we even abolished our National Intelligence Service, and it happened again in the early 1990s. And those of you who were my colleagues in the early 1990s will remember something called the Peace Dividend, or as it was so euphemistically called, the Glide Path, where 
the intelligence budget and intelligence uh, personnel went down dramatically. So this was always a challenge for the United States. And it wasn't until we were sort of dragged into the industrial uh, age by the first generation of weapons of mass destruction that the United States got serious about national intelligence. Now, I've given you a big hint here as to what the first weapons of mass destruction were. They were battleships. And the, the development of those ships in the 1870s and 1880s, after um, we had been free from war or international war for 30 years, during the Civil War, our Navy was probably as good as any in the world. Twenty years later, our Navy was 12th in the world, and Brazil had a larger Navy than the United States did. And suddenly here you have this new generation class of super weapons, these, these uh, battleships, and the United States discovers not only do we not have comparable ships, but we don't know much about the international threat facing us or the other international players. And so the first intelligence, <coughs> national intelligence organization created by the United States in 1882 was the Office of Naval Intelligence. And as collectors as operations officers, we would now call them, uh, we started deploying naval attaches overseas. Three years later, the Army created uh, the Military Intelligence Division, and so you started having military officers assigned abroad to U.S. missions as intelligence collectors. And what they were trying to do, basically, was understand the environment, the threat environment that we were facing. And among these early officers, there is one named John Alwyn Gade, and he was, or Gadet, perhaps we can pronounce it, he was, um, his father was a Swedish diplomat, his mother was American, and he uh, spoke most of the Scandinavian languages, and during the First World War, he was assigned to Western Europe as a military attaché. There's an excellent article about him a couple of years ago in the CIA magazine, Studies in Intelligence, and frankly, that article inspired me to start looking at the, the whole idea of these naval attaches, because as we're going to move on to the next slides, the uh, first uh, the first director of the CIA was himself <coughs> a naval attaché. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about Missouri, because here we have uh, Sodom and Gomorrah here. This is Kansas City. Wide open machine politics. Uh, Kansas City. Uh, Boss Pendergast, Jim Pendergast, who was sort of the Richard Daly of Kansas City. It was a wide open town. 
And it was in this environment that Harry Truman, after he came back from the First World War, where he was a National Guard uh, artillery officer, served in France, came home to Kansas City, and got into politics. Now, this is not to imply that he was a corrupt machine politician. He wasn't. But, and in fact, Pendergast described him as the orneriest individual in the state of Missouri, precisely because he wouldn't give Pendergast's friends contracts when he was essentially mayor of Kansas City in the 1920s. But he grew up as a political expert in that environment. St. Louis was much more clean cut, and it was the fourth largest city in the United <coughs> States. It was the first city outside Europe to get a World's Fair. And uh, basically, uh, very prosperous business community, not nearly as corrupt as Kansas City. Out of that community, uh, St. Louis, you got two of the most prominent leaders of the early CIA. And I'm going to walk around here and show you who the Missouri gang is. The first person in the Missouri gang is not, in fact, from Missouri. This is Fleet Admiral William Leahy, who had been chief of naval operations in the 1930s, and then went on to become chief of staff to the commander-in-chief for Franklin Roosevelt. He was, in effect, the chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the Second World War. Leahy is going to show up again later. You then have a, uh, a St. Louis businessman named Sidney Sowers, who made his, his money in banking and insurance companies in St. Louis and joined the Navy Reserves as a reserve intelligence officer in the 1920s. Here you have Roscoe Hillencutter, who was from St. Louis. He is the uh, son of a postman, German-American postman. So real blue-collar background as opposed to Sowers, who was uh, very, very wealthy indeed. And Hillencotter and Sowers, both naval officers, along with Leahy. <coughs> then you've got Hoyt Vandenberg, who was the nephew of a, a very prominent and powerful Michigan senator, Walter Vandenberg, who's the Republican chairman of the Senate International Relations Committee or Foreign Affairs Committee. Then you've got Clark Clifford, businessman from, uh, from Kansas City, who at the end of the Second World War, as a junior naval officer, he's also in the Navy, by the way, uh, was serving in the White House, in Truman's White House, in the, the what was called the uh, map room. So that was basically the 1940s equivalent of the Situation Room. So he was one of the intelligence briefers. He was a lawyer, and he became White House counsel, who was 
uh, instrumental in the creation of the CIA. And finally, you have another Missourian, Larry Houston, whose father was the president of Washington University in St. Louis. And Larry Houston was also a lawyer, worked for the OSS, and then became the general counsel of the CIA. So Clifford and Houston worked together to create the CIA, basically. We're first going to start talking about uh, Hill and Cotter, but make one last point about the Missouri gang. I call them that not because they were corrupt, but because that was the name that Truman's political enemies gave the people around him to sort of remind people that he had come out of that corrupt political environment. Although I'll have to say that Truman was probably one of the most upright uh, presidents we've had. Here's Helen Goddard, uh, graduated from the Naval Academy uh, near the top of his class at the end of the First World War, too late to actually serve in the war. Uh, had service on a couple of very famous battleships. This is West Virginia, we're going to see again later, and this is Missouri. Eric Truman's favorite battleship. So I said he was a St. Louis native. Um, for some reason, he was extraordinarily gifted in languages. And he has left very few footprints. So it's really challenging to find out very much about him, about his personal life, about his thoughts, and so on. Although at the end of his career, um, and at the end of his life, he became spectacularly famous for something you won't even imagine. Uh, he was... Uh, a teacher of Romance languages at the Navy Academy in the 1920s. He served as a staff officer and he served on battleships. And then in the early 1930s, he was assigned as a naval attaché in Paris. And this is the point at which, as far as I can see, you get the first generation of what I would really call professional intelligence officers. People who um, may not have been as well trained as we have been with the CIA, but who did a very good job of doing all of the missions and tasks that intelligence officers, especially field intelligence officers, are supposed to do. Now remember as a naval attaché, he was not a clandestine officer. He was not undercover. He was exactly what he pretended to be, which was a naval officer. Uh, and um, he collected, he reported, he analyzed, and once the war started, he also got involved in operations. You may not remember with all of the crises we're having these days, but the 1930s were a very dramatic and crisis-fold time 
in Europe. For one thing, you had, after 1933, a resurgent, aggressive Germany, creating what they called the Third Empire, and you had the Spanish Civil War, which was basically a preview of the Second World War, in which the fascists, the Italian fascists and the German Nazis, tried out their new equipment and their new technologies against the Soviets. You had the Russians on one side, and you had the Nazis and the uh, fascists on the other side. And the Spanish Civil War was going on right at France's doorstep. So Hillencotter, as a military attaché, would make trips down to uh, Spain to report on the new techniques and equipment that was being used. Basically, Hermann Goering was testing out the Blitzkrieg, and he was testing out air war against the, uh, the Spanish. Uh, beyond that, uh, the Germans were illegally recreating their army. They'd been forbidden by the Treaty of Versailles in 1918 to reconstitute a large military. So basically what they did was they used the same method that, that we used with the Civilian Conservation Corps, and they called it the Labor Service, or the Deutsche Arbeitsdienst. And that was, during the Depression, recruiting young people to um, do public works projects. Now, you may have children or grandchildren or grandfathers or grandmothers who served in the Civilian Conservation Corps during um, the 1930s. My father-in-law was in the CCC here in the United States, and most of the post offices and county seats and national parks can thank the CCC for a lot of the construction that went on. But our CCC guys did not march with the goose step in uniform, and they weren't using shovels as uh, substitutes for rifles. But Hillencotter, as an American attaché who spoke essentially native German, made a probe down the German frontier along the, the uh, east side of the Rhine River as the Nazis were building up their forces. And he would just drive along. He would pick up hitchhikers who were either labor corps boys or soldiers. He would give them cigarettes and he'd say, what are you guys working on? And they would say, oh, we're building this airfield or we're building this fort here. We're doing uh, that there. And he made a, uh, a remarkably uh, fruitful probe of the frontier there. He was the last guy allowed to do that because immediately after his trip, the Germans forbade any military or military retirees who were foreigners from going into that area. Aside from that, of course, the Germans are expanding uh, the borders of Germany, first with the Rhineland, 
and then uh, incorporating Austria, and then pressing the Sudetenland, Czechoslovakia. And there were repeated war scares in France uh, where panic would set in and people would flee from Paris by <coughs> the tens of thousands. This picture, by the way, is a very interesting one because you see the dogs underneath the cart there. This is, I think, the inspiration for an interview that was given by one of Hill and Cotter's uh, embassy friends in Paris, um, Douglas MacArthur II, who was a nephew of General Douglas MacArthur. And he was in Paris at the same time, and he gave an oral history interview to the Library of Congress where he describes this exact scene of people fleeing with their dogs tied to the bottoms of the carts as they would just leave the city. Of course, they were, they were less than 20 years from the First World War when the Germans had almost gotten to Paris. So this was still very uh, immediate to them. Hill and Cotter remained in Paris when the Germans occupied. Uh, embassy dependents were evacuated from France, but Hill and Cotter and the Chargé, uh, a State Department officer by the name of Robert Murphy, remained in town along with the uh, army attaché, and they literally greeted the Germans as they marched into Paris. So Hill and Cotter was right there watching the Germans occupy Paris. And he was invited by the, uh, the uh, military governor, German military governor, who had been an attaché himself, a German army attaché himself in Warsaw. He says, come on in, have some champagne with us. And hey, listen, I used to be a military attaché myself, so ask me any questions you want. I understand your job <coughs> is to collect information. What do you want to know? And Hillengotter says to him, how are you going to get to England? And... <laughs> And he says, don't worry, we got it all worked out. <laughs> so Hill and Goddard remained there in Paris. Um, France was divided with Paris under uh, German occupation, and a rump government was set up in a resort town in southern uh, France called Vichy, a spa down there. And a new American ambassador was assigned, Admiral William Leahy. And there he is. You can see all these medals. He was a retired chief of naval operations. And here we have Hill and Cotter as the naval attaché. Here, by the way, is Douglas MacArthur II. You can tell by the eyebrows that he's a MacArthur. Here's the <laughs> army attaché. And then there's the assistant, David Attaché. But Leahy became the ambassador to Vichy. And uh, basically what uh, Hill and Cotter and his army colleagues were doing was they were trying to get people out of occupied France. They were trying what we would now call exfiltration, to move people. Um, 
Brits or Canadians or other people who were threatened by the occupation, trying to get them out of the country. Um, in Vichy, um, he was working with resistance groups. He would give them money. He would give them documents. So he he was doing a lot of a lot of uh, working to facilitate the preservation of a resistance movement in the very very early months of the occupation. Uh, Uh, the other thing he was doing, once Germany fell, or once France fell, once France <clears throat> fell, the French had a very large fleet based primarily in the Mediterranean. And literally a month after the Germans occupied France, there was great alarm and concern about whether the French fleet was going to be used by the Germans or not. That's why they chose Leahy to be the ambassador. Well, Winston Churchill decided he was going to put the whole issue off the table, and the British Air Force and Navy attacked and destroyed the French fleet in their bases in July of 1941. This, of course, infuriated the French, who were already feeling that um, that the British had had not been very good allies during the collapse of France. Of course, you know, in, the, in a situation where you've got two armies trying to work with each other uh, against a vastly superior uh, force with much better morale and much better equipment, Basically, the Battle of France was a rout, and the British were lucky to have escaped from Dunkirk by themselves, but that left the French with a lot of grievances, which only got worse once the British destroyed the French Navy. So Helen Goddard, who was basically the equivalent of a lieutenant colonel at that point, his job was to try to keep the French minister of the Navy a, a senior leader by the name of Francois Darlan from actively supporting the Germans. So you can imagine what a challenge that was to try to talk this furious Frenchman whose fleet had just been blown up by his supposed ally. And Hillengotter's job was, no, no, don't support the Germans. Remember, you have to stay on the Western side. And he's arguing this at a time when the United States is by no means prepared to get into the war. So Leahy and Hillencotter had quite a challenging job to do. This, by the way, is the period when Leahy really gets to know Hillencotter, and it's going to be important later in the story. Hillencotter, because he'd done such a great job in uh, France, in Paris and Vichy, gets a promotion. And what could be a better promotion from a naval officer than to become the second-in-command of an American battleship? Literally three weeks before Pearl Harbor. Three weeks before Pearl Harbor, in the middle of November 1940, 
One, he is assigned as executive officer, second in command, the USS West Virginia, which gets blown up out from under him. Captain is killed. Helen Goddard has to swim ashore, and the entire fleet is destroyed. And Helen Goddard, at that point, is given another critical job, which is he becomes chief of intelligence for Admiral uh, Nimitz, who is the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet, such as it is. And during the six months after Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese are basically sweeping everybody ahead of them and are occupying island after island, Wake Island, uh, all of these others, capturing islands right and left, Hill and Goddard is struggling to put together an intelligence group at Pearl Harbor, and he is struggling to put together a cryptographic program which is going to break the Japanese codes. So they're doing all of the intelligence analytic challenges which unfortunately the United States had not been very well prepared for. So that's, that's what he does for the next few months. Now at this point I want to step back just a moment and we'll go back to Washington. Because Pearl Harbor is the classic example of the failure of coordination. It's the failure of analysis. Not necessarily the failure of collection, but of analysis. And um, Franklin Roosevelt, President Franklin Roosevelt, even though he considered himself to be his own um, chief of intelligence and enjoyed being uh, a devious, improvisational intelligence leader, he recognized that he needed somebody to coordinate, somebody to get the Army and the Navy to cooperate with each other, which had not happened before. And so he asks World War I hero William Donovan to become his coordinator of information. And that is the first formal chief of national intelligence for the United States, coordinator of information. Now, Donovan is a very aggressive man himself, and he seizes the opportunity. And, of course, everybody else in Washington is horrified. And this brings me to one of the classic lessons that we never learn which is never let the national interest stand in the way of your little rice bowl. The Navy and the Army both decided, and by the way, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, all decided that this was the biggest threat. Not Hitler, not the Japanese, but Donna. And basically, they spent the entire war trying to emasculate or at least control what Donovan had put together. Uh, in, the, uh, in the famous words of a very short-lived White House press secretary, the famous Mooch, Anthony Scaramucci, 
Sometimes your brothers are your worst enemies. And in this case, the OSS's worst enemies were the FBI, Department of the Army, and Department of the Navy. Um, Donovan, however, managed to get cover by getting his uh, organization under the military, under the Joint Chiefs, under Leahy, as it happened, and the Office of Strategic Service, which was based here near the uh, Lincoln Memorial, right here in the Navy Observatory, was created in 1942. Now, Donovan, I have to say, did something that was really remarkably good, and that was he recognized, he really fundamentally understood what it was intelligence organizations are supposed to do. And my favorite definition of the role of intelligence is to understand or influence foreign threats. Understanding is the primary purpose of intelligence. Collecting and analyzing information to help you understand your enemies. So the first group that Donovan hired was a bunch of college professors. Who better to understand and analyze foreign data than university professors? You may recognize here, this is Sherman Kent. This is young Sherman Kent, who is a Yale history professor. And you've got William Langer, who is a Harvard University professor. They, they collected as much foreign data as they could. They analyzed as much foreign data as they could. They deployed these analysts forward to places like London and later on. And, and the heart of the OSS in many ways, as well as the heart of the CIA, has always been its analytic prowess. And that's what makes it unique. There are very few other intelligence organizations in the world that include the analytic component the way the CIA and the OSS before it does. But of course, you had a war going on. So in this case, the uh, Americans used the British model of unconventional warfare, um, espionage, covert action, propaganda, sabotage, but also supporting uh, resistance groups overseas. And using Stanley Lovell, who was the first Q, the first director of the Office of Technical Service for the OSS, to, to develop communications, weapons, and sabotage devices, parachuting behind enemy lines. And this, by the way, is Virginia Hall, who was a uh, OSS officer in France, organizing French resistance groups. And the primary purpose of these resistance groups was to prepare the battle space <coughs> for the invasion of France. So the reason they were there was in France to harass the Germans, but also to build up a force that could support military operations once the invasion took place. In places like Eastern Europe and Yugoslavia 
and in uh, the Far East, like China, they were basically resistance, uh, organizing resistance groups. And, and this, in some ways, is the tragic lesson that we gained from the OSS that we never seem to have learned. Because working with these groups in places like Yugoslavia, in places like France, in places like China, were extraordinarily frustrating for the Americans because, again, two things. You cannot, we as Americans, cannot resolve century-old feuds. In places like France, you had the royalists on one side, you had the communists or the workers on the other side. In Yugoslavia, you had the communists, the royalists. In China, you had the warlords and the nationalists. And they're all feuding amongst themselves. So we were always very frustrated in trying to work with those people. And it's exactly the same kind of problems that we have seen over and over again. Central America, who, who to support, who to back. In South Asia, which warlord? should we support? Is that warlord truly committed to our goals, or is he just stockpiling forces and weapons so that as soon as the Americans leave, they can go back to fighting each other, which is what happened in Yugoslavia and China. Um, also never trust a group more interested in fighting rivals than in fighting the foreign enemy. And this is the lesson that we keep having to learn over and over again. So as Yogi Berra said, it's deja vu all over again. Now this is an interesting picture because Truman was in a lot of ways an accidental <coughs> vice president. He was picked simply as a compromise in 1944 when Roosevelt was running for his fourth term as president. And this is an interesting picture. How much of an age difference do you think there is in these two men? This is Franklin Roosevelt in 1944. This is Harry Truman. This, by the way, is the first private meeting they had once Truman was named as vice president. Roosevelt, of course, had uh, polio and had been president for, at that point, 12 years. But what do you think is the age difference between those two men? Two years. Two years. Harry Truman is two years younger than Franklin Roosevelt. And at this point, Franklin Roosevelt doesn't have another year left. So at that point, in April of 1945, when he doesn't indeed die, Harry Truman finds himself exactly in the same situation that Hill and Cotter found himself at Pearl Harbor when he gets a ship blown out from under him, sunk under him, and he's being um, deluged with a horde of problems. In the case of Hill and Cotter, it's the advancing Japanese forces. In the case of Truman, he doesn't know anything about American foreign policy because Roosevelt kept everything in his hip pocket. He would not inform Truman of what he was doing. And oh, by the way, at Yalta, 
in the spring of 1945, Churchill and Roosevelt had already given away Eastern Europe. So there wasn't even any argument left as to what was going to happen to the captive nations of Eastern Europe. They were already um, given to the Soviet sphere of influence. Truman did have one thing that he thought was his ace in the hole, and this picture is taken at Potsdam in July of 1945, where Truman, the brand new president, goes to meet what he calls Mr. England and Mr. Russia. And at that conference, Truman is notified that the United States has conducted the first successful test of an atomic weapon. And this information is given to him at his villa in Potsdam, and uh, Admiral Leahy and his other staff gets together with him at Potsdam in his, in his uh, villa, and they decide what they're going to do with this information, first successful test. He decides to tell Stalin, who for some reason does not seem surprised by the news. We, of course, now know from Venona um, decrypts that the Russians had penetrated the, um, the Manhattan Project in the United States and in Great Britain. So they had spies all over the place. And also, of course, Potsdam was in an area occupied by the Russians, so I would lay money on the fact that Truman's... Uh, villa had been wired completely, because in fact we, we do have evidence that at Yalta the Russians had wired up Roosevelt's and probably Churchill's uh, villas as well. So the war ends successfully, or the war in Europe ends, Alan Dulles gets freed from uh, Bern, where he's been in, in isolation for the last four years and becomes the chief of OSS Germany. Here is uh, Richard Helms, another uh, later director of the CIA. And this is the maximum extent of OSS's power. This is all of the OSS stations and bases in Europe and in Asia because once the war in Europe ended, OSS resources were shifted to Asia, to China, and basically we've got a global service, and we've got a global full capacity service. We've got a extraordinarily good analytic component. We have very experienced uh, intelligence collectors, case officers, We've got first-rate analysts, and we've got first-rate technical developers. So basically, we've got everything we need. Uh, the war ends on the 2nd of September, and by the 20th of September, Harry Truman has abolished the OSS. It is absolutely wiped out. And they go from uh, uh, 13,000 people down to 2,000 and all of the 
the little um, remaining pieces of the OSS are transferred to the Army, and basically we go home. Now, a lot of folks have criticized Truman for that, but as it turns out, it wasn't his fault. Basically, the OSS had been a temporary wartime organization, which by law had to be abolished. And because of that, we lost all of these <coughs> capabilities almost at once. And there wasn't anybody left to pick up the pieces. So this is where we get the final Missourian. This is Sidney Sowers. Here he is as a Navy uh, commander in South Carolina. And this is his only experience compared to Helen Goddard, who really had a lot of experience as a field operations officer and a field operator and as an intelligence manager in the Pacific. Helen Gunner or Sowers was basically running a small office in Charleston, South Carolina, and his only claim to fame was he debriefed the first U-boat crew captured by the Americans in the Second World War. However, Sowers had an ace in the hole. As a businessman, Sowers was a good friend of a man by the name of George of uh, James Forrestal. James Forrestal and he were business partners in the 1930s. By this time, 1944-45, Forrestal is Secretary of the Navy. And Sowers goes to his friend and he says, I'm bored stiff. I can't stand it here Charleston. So Forrestal says, how would you like San Juan, Puerto Rico? So he sends him down there. He's bored stiff there. So finally, Forrestal says, I know, how would you like to be Deputy Chief of Naval Intelligence? This is a guy who has almost no experience as an intelligence officer. What he is, is an extraordinarily skilled business manager. And it turns out what Truman really needs is somebody who understands management. So as Deputy Chief of Naval Intelligence, Sowers is going to have a pivotal role. Meanwhile, let's finish up the picture of Hillencotter. Spends the war after he leaves the uh, after he leaves Pearl Harbor, he works with destroyers, and then at the end of the war, uh, right after the war, he becomes the commander of the most famous battleship in history, Missouri. And at this point, he does something as the commander of Missouri, which is extraordinary in 1945. During the Civil War, it was a free state. Um, most Missourians were for segregation. And St. Louis was a segregated city up until the 1970s. So in 1946, Helen Cotter, as commander of Missouri, gets invited to go to St. Louis 
for a big celebration in honor of the end of the war and in honor of the battleship. And he's asked to bring a bunch of sailors who are themselves Missourians, the way he is. And so these are the sailors he brings with him, including this guy over here. This is the only picture I've ever seen of this group. But one of the sailors is black. And this is at a point where the, the military is not integrated and blacks are not allowed to serve in the Navy as anything other than cooks or waiters. But this is a guy he brings with him. And they're going to have this big banquet and festival in honor of all these people until they find out this guy's along. Now, I don't know what his name is. I don't know anything about him except they're going to have the big dinner and they say to Hill and Cotter, well, we want to honor all you people, but oh, by the way, you can't bring this guy. And he says, he's a member of my crew. If he doesn't come, we don't come. And that was the end of it. At that point, they, they backed off. And Sowers, or Hill and Cotter there, remarkably advanced for that period, 1945, I think. <coughs> but he insisted, and through his entire career as a naval officer and as director, he was known for the loyalty he earned from his troops and from the CIA. Most of the people who worked for him just loved him. He goes back to France, 1946-1947, makes admiral, and is awarded the French Legion of Honor. And at that point, Sowers and William Leahy and Clark Clifford and Larry Houston are back in Washington. Now that the OSS is abolished, what the heck are we going to do for strategic intelligence analysis? And Truman is bugging the hell out of his managers, saying, where is my newspaper? Now, what he means by his newspaper is basically the first generation of the president's daily brief. So, almost immediately at the end of the war, Truman is saying, okay, we've abolished the OSS, but we've taken away all of our intelligence resources and we need them back. So, he turns the job over to his uh, military chief of staff, Leahy, who is very busy at that point doing an inconsequential little job, which is reorganizing the American military. He's basically drafting what is going to become the National Security Act of 1947. So Leahy delegates the job to Sowers. Sowers and Clark Clifford, working with Larry Houston, are the people who put together the whole idea of what the Central Intelligence Agency is going to be. And they keep it basically under the radar. The big fight going on in Washington is between the Army and the Navy, 
and oh my god, are we going to have an independent air force, and are we going to have strategic bombers, are we going to have aircraft carriers? That's the big fight going on. Meantime, Sowers and Clifford and Houston are writing a couple of pages. That's all it was, two pages in the National Security Act of 1947, which creates the Department of Defense, creates the Secretary of Defense, creates the Department of the Air Force, creates a statutory chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, creates a National Security Council and a National Security Advisor, and, oh, by the way, in two pages, creates a CIA. And the first person to become the director of this statutory <coughs> CIA is Helen Cutler, there, with Sowers becoming the first executive secretary of the National Security Council. So basically, he becomes the National Security Advisor. And here we have the National Security Council with Secretary of State George C. Marshall, who had been Chief of Staff of the Army. Here we have James Forrestal, who's the first Secretary of Defense. Here we have Sowers as the first National Security Advisor. And there's Helen Cotter as the first Director of the CIA. Now, at that point, I'm not going to go into what happens over the next three years because it's just awful. Uh, infighting, uh, resistance from the FBI and the Army and the Navy and the State Department, by the way. Nobody wants the new CIA any more than they wanted the uh, OSS in 1942. It's also a very tumultuous time. The, the Russians have occupied all of Eastern Europe. China has fallen to the communists. Uh, there's one crisis after another. The Russians detonate the atomic bomb. And then finally, the coup de grace, for Hillengotter at least, the North Koreans invade South Korea. And at that point, Hillengotter says, you know, I've had enough of this crap. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm basically a sailor, so send me back to the fleet. And he is replaced by Eisenhower's chief of staff, Walter Beadle Smith here. You can see how glum he's looking. You can see how happy Hillengotter is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here is Larry Houston. There's Frank Wisner, who's the uh, chief of covert action. And there's Walter Fortzheimer, who is the chief of uh, congressional affairs. And Dylan Goddard goes back to the fleet as commander of a cruiser squadron off the coast of uh, Korea. And this is where we figure Webster and he would have worked together because Webster was on an uh, oiler. So he was refueling. This is Helen Clutter's flagship, which is uh, called the St. Paul. And that's basically the end of it. Helen Cotter retires from the Navy. He gets a job, um, corporate job. He gets rich. And he's going to live happily ever after until 1960. And out of the blue, in February of 1960, 
Hillman Cotter writes a letter to the New York Times. This is February of 1960. Think about this. And Hillman Cotter at that point is a member of something called the National Investigative Committee for Aerial Phenomena. And he writes a letter to the Times saying, the government is hiding the truth about UFOs. UFOs, flying saucers, they're lying to you about UFOs. And if you Google Helen Cotter's name today, that's all you'll discover about him. It's his association with flying saucers. That's not the end of it, of course, because this is February of 1960. We are, by the way, at that point, four years into the U2 program. And on the seventh floor of CIA headquarters, I think, geez, should we tell Helen Cotter about U2? Because in fact, the U2s are 60 to 70 percent of the unidentified flying objects that people are seeing. They are, in fact, CIA secret aircraft. And apparently, they do not tell him. But three months later, on the 1st of May, 1960, the whole world finds out about U2s when Gary Powers is shot down. And that's basically the end of the story about him and Goddard, uh, except for this. In the late 1980s, during the Reagan military buildup, a fleet of spaceships was developed called the Solar Warden Space Fleet. And one of those spaceships is called the USSS Hillencott. And this is the size of this thing compared to the latest generation of American aircraft carriers. This is the Gerald Ford, and that's the silhouette of the Gerald Ford, and that is the USS Spaceship Hillencott. Again, according to the internet, and if it's on the internet, it must be true. The only other identified fleet in this class of spaceships is, not surprisingly, the USSS Curtis LeMay. So we've got a spaceship up there since the 1980s, named for Helen Goddard, and one named for So that's basically the end of the story, except for this, Harry Truman. Uh, last words for him. 1964, to the Central Intelligence Agency, a necessity to the President of the United States from one who so, Hill and Cotter, Donovan before him, set the framework for what we basically still have today. And Sowers set the framework for the intelligence structure and the national security structure that we still have today. The Defense Department, National Security Apparatus, National Security Council, and all of these advisors. So that's basically it. I'm not going to tell you any more because you should be reading the book yourself and I thought much too long anyway. But if anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. 
or if nobody has any questions but wants to buy the book, I would be happy to sign it. So, any questions? Anything more about UFOs? Thank you. If you think I'm making things up about the UFOs, by the way, there's an article in Studies of Intelligence written by the former chief historian of the CIA, Gary Haynes, about um, the CIA and UFOs, basically talking about Project Blue Book and how Project Blue Book was a covert action campaign targeted on Americans by the Air Force and the CIA, essentially to convince them that no, there's no such things as UFOs. And oh, by the way, there's no such things as U2s either. Yes, ma'am, you had a question? Uh, yeah. I wonder, can you tell me about uh, the Japanese surveyor that condition? Can you tell me what condition they put? About the Japanese? In the World War II, Japanese? What about the Japanese? The, the, Japanese surrendered to the United oh, States. Yeah. And it, before the United States had no condition attached. So what is those condition? Well the 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 Japanese surrender uh, took place on the battleship Missouri, of course. Um, the war in the West had been won, the war in the East was now going to be decided by Harry Truman. What was he going to do? And basically the question was, are you going to deploy the atomic bomb or not? And there's been a lot of controversy about that. A former director of analysis for the CIA, Doug McCacken, has written a monograph about the decision to drop the atomic bomb. And the decision was based on the best intelligence analysis that we were getting from Communications Intercept, which showed us that the Japanese were not prepared to surrender. They were going to fight foot by foot over all of the islands. And um, this is immediately after the Battle of Okinawa, which had cost 6,000 American casualties. And the projections were that if we had to invade the home islands was going to cost between a quarter of a million up to a million American casualties. And I believe personally that that was what led to Truman's decision. And how many Japanese casualties? In the fighting? Yeah. Well, I don't know that they, I don't know that McCacken estimated that, but it would have been, would have been more than the it would have been lots more. Yes. Because in, in Okinawa, for example, it wasn't just the soldiers, it was women and children who also refused to surrender. So, you know, it was just a very difficult thing. The, the OSS in the Second World War didn't do a lot against Japan because Douglas MacArthur wouldn't let the OSS into his theater of operations. Again, this is rice bowl issues. This is, no, you can't play in my sandbox. So the OSS wasn't really allowed to operate in the South Pacific. They could operate in China, but in China, 
they had to deal with all of the internecine struggles between the various warlords and the nationalists and so on. It was just a big mess. It was not at all successful. Somebody else has a question. Bunches of people have questions. Thank you very much, Professor. My name is Connor Clark. I'm uh, currently in grad school at University of Maryland's uh, School of Public Policy. Uh, I was a little surprised and perhaps a little confused uh, myself by how you characterize the Vichy regime in France. I've actually heard other things that have left me a little unclear on just how much independence they had. I would have assumed that the whole fleet would have just been confiscated by the Germans or carried on, you know, as it was, but it did seem like this this uh, naval minister was persuadable one way or the other. Were they, you know, trying to stay neutral? Were they? Uh, how would you characterize Vichy neutrality? You know, um, with uh, how much or how easily they were penetrated, compromised, recruited. Um, certain patriotic Frenchmen who stayed in the regime to pass on information to Western allies. And were there any interesting? Cases of that with these uh, founder founding fathers of the CIA. Well, if in fact, if in fact there were any people staying in, I mean, this is always the dilemma. After you've gotten occupied, uh, one of the one of the famous nouns to come out of the Second World War is Quisling. For the people who uh, cooperated, or as the French called them, collaborated with the occupying power. Um, Vichy did not stay independent for very long, if it was independent at all. And in fact, once the Allies invaded North Africa in 1942, the Germans just did away with the fiction altogether and they occupied the, the whole of France. So the first few months or weeks of the, the Second World War in the, in the West was a very delicate balancing act. The French had been defeated, but they hadn't yet come down one way or another, whether they were going to ally with the Germans or whether they were going to try to stay neutral. And that was the question of the fleet. That was the question of what was going to happen in North Africa. That was going to happen in the Levant where there were French colonies in Lebanon, or in French Indochina. What was going to happen to the French forces there? And as it happened, uh, the Japanese pretty much left the French completely alone in Indochina, but wasn't necessarily the case in, um, in either unoccupied France or in North Africa. Another one of Hillencotter's probes by the way, you know, he drove down the, the Rhineland. He also made a short trip to French North Africa. And his analysis was that even though France had been de uh, defeated, the, the French forces in North Africa had pretty much been left untouched and unmolested by the Germans. So his recommendation which uh, Robert Murphy took to Franklin Roosevelt was, hey, you know, there's, there's hay to be made here in North Africa. 
Of course, Churchill had to move decisively, decided to destroy the French Navy. And at that point, uh, many of the guys, including Darlan, started overtly wishing that the Germans would win. And in fact, started encouraging the Germans to take over Gibraltar, things of that sort. So, you know, I haven't made a big study of what was going on in Vichy, but it was again one of these very complicated areas. All of France was. You know, you had people who wanted the Bourbons to come back, for God's sakes. There were royalists, there were the, uh, the, the urban communists, there were uh, Democrats, there were all variety of people, and this was what made the challenge for the Americans so very difficult. Uh, not only there, but in places like Yugoslavia, Eastern Europe, China. That's what I'm saying. You don't get yourself messed up in other people's wars that have been going on for centuries. Thank you so much. So, sure. The last photograph you showed included a picture of Walter Forsheimer. I was yes. I was one of his students and later his department chairman. And I wanted if you just speak very briefly about his role in helping to create the CIA. Uh, Forsheimer was what was then uh, informally the congressional liaison office, and this was during a period when. Um, the government didn't want to tell Congress what was going on, and Congress didn't want to hear what was going on. And basically, the barons on Capitol Hill, like Richard Russell, uh, were, were running the, um, the intelligence um, funding programs out of their hip pockets. And they didn't want to be told. Fortzheimer, I think, said at one point, you know, it wasn't that we wanted to keep stuff from them. It was we couldn't ever get them to sit still so we could brief us. Uh, they basically said, you know, there are lots of things we don't want to hear about. It was kind of monkey see monkey. You know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. So he didn't have much of a job, except he did get involved in the actual uh, log rolling when uh, the CIA provision was slipped into that larger bill. But remember, nobody wanted to focus on the CIA. Nobody wanted to talk about the CIA. So the big fight was between the admirals who wanted aircraft carriers and the Air Force generals who wanted B-36s. And as uh, Omar Bradley, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and by the way is another Missourian, said, if the Air Force and the Army and the Navy had fought the Japanese and the Germans as hard as they were fighting each other, the war would have been over two years early. And just as a final point, I would refer you to the big fight in 2005 about whether you're going to have a director of national intelligence and how that turned out. So, we have time for one more. One. We can squeeze two more questions. We'll take two together. Yes, um, my question is about China, and um, it was kind of for, for Western Europe, it was a little bit easier to infiltrate the German military structure because we 
Westerners were looking a little bit more like the Germans, but uh, for the Japanese military, I'm pretty sure the, the Chinese had infiltrated the Japanese army and were um, able to convey information, if you could talk about that. And also with the George Marshall mission in China post-World War II, um, was that decision to kind of pull out of China, was that, was that a decision, a military decision, or is that a decision based upon the gathering of intelligence information when they were gathering up forces, they, they had they had an American contingent in uh, Manchuria, they had brought some American troops into Manchuria to brought out the, the Japanese forces that were still there post-World War II, uh, at the very end of the Second World War, and, and uh, then there was a hope of perhaps uh, aiding the nationalists, but um, then then George Marshall kind of decided it, it was a, a no-game or so. Well, I, <laughs> I think the decision China. on China was not made by George Marshall, it was made by Mao Zedong. And it had more to do with the incompetence and the corruption of the nationalist regime and the uh, superior uh, persuasiveness and military power of the, of the communists under Mao than it did about anything that the United States could have done at that point. Uh, as to your earlier point, um, the, the Western allies, the British and the Americans, got to China by way of South Asia, by way of Burma and India, and the bases there were the ones that put the, uh, the OSS and the other uh, uh, outposts of the Americans in China. You know, the, the Burma Road, the whole hump business, were efforts to supply Chinese resistance forces. But what the OSS quickly discovered, as they discovered in France, was these warlords were in it for their own interests, not for anything having to do with some greater idea of a big liberal democratic China. It's kind of the same situation in Afghanistan, where those warlords are in it for themselves. And uh, one of the quotations that I found was that it was in China that the OSS really got its heart broken on the, the idea that you could rally and organize a national resistance movement because it simply didn't exist. Everybody was in it for himself. Sorry. Another place they got their heart broken was Berlin at the end of the Second World War when initially they thought, hey, maybe we can cooperate with the Russians. So the OSS got its heart broken a lot. And the CIA has over the years as well. So. Unfortunately, we run out of time, but before we all disband, please join me in thanking well, Professor. Thank you.